we need to get to a place where we have reasonable people who are the nominees for office, top to bottom, if we're going to get out of this. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslin. What sort of person decides to step back from an esteemed career as a legal advocate who has skillfully and unflinchingly defended the civil liberties of people of all political persuasions and embark on a mission to protect America from our anti-democratic extremists, cynical discourse, and polarized politics by embarking on one of the most exhausting and thankless prospects you could possibly imagine I am talking about a bid for Congress. I humbly submit the answer is exactly the sort of person Congress needs at this moment. Uh, Returning to the podcast today, but this time as a congressional candidate, is Joe Cohn, who is currently running in the Democratic primary for New Jersey's third congressional district. And until very recently, he was the director of the Legislative and Policy Department at the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, also known as FIRE. He oversaw their team of attorneys and staff that monitor and engage on legislation and regulation. He's a graduate of the University of Pennsylvania School of Law and the Fells Institute of Government Administration, where he earned his JD and a master's degree in government administration. Uh, Before joining FIRE, he was a staff attorney at the AIDS Law Project of Pennsylvania and was the interim legal director for ACLU affiliates in both Nevada and Utah. Candidate Joe, welcome back to Politicology. It's great to have you back. Thank you so much, Ron. It's always such a pleasure talking with you. You were first on the show uh, last spring with Hagar Shamali for what turned out to be a pretty robust discussion on the uh, proposition of banning TikTok from the United States under the proposed Restrict Act. And I thought you brought some very much needed shall we say, constitutional sobriety to that topic? Maybe we'll get into that a little bit later. So let's talk about the bid. What made you decide to run? uh, Why now? And uh, why you? What it came down to for me was that my work at FIRE had me going to legislatures across the country, colleges across the country. And I was seeing the same inability to productively talk about problems at all of those levels and everywhere in between. The polarization across the country, I think we're all feeling it, is so intense that it's breaking our politics and it's tearing our society apart. And my work at FIRE had me doing really important advocacy on behalf of people's free speech rights, but it required me to be neutral on virtually everything else in order to not alienate lawmakers on either side of the spectrum. So I had to bite my lip on all sorts of things that also matter to me. And that was always a little bit frustrating uh, because, as one might imagine, uh, I have opinions. But after January 6th, with the way that we've seen the insurrection unfold and how the entire Republican Party nearly turned on Pence for his failure to go along with President Trump's scheme to take the election, and the attacks on the press that are constant, and the seated members of Congress that are still denying the 2020 election results, all of that had me thinking that our democracy is in a greater danger now than it had been at any other time in my life. So I'd been thinking about 
what I can do to be more productive and maybe bring the nation a little bit closer together because the trajectory we're on is really troublesome. So that was you know, what had me in this mindset. And then for me, the events in the Middle East on October 7th uh, were the tipping point where I no longer felt like it was feasible to just sit on the sidelines on everything else. I didn't think that we could continue trusting uh, and leaving Congress in the hands of the people who tend to run. Why is that? Well, it's broken and nothing gets done. And, you know, uh, it, it's such an obvious problem that we're seeing front and center with how the immigration deal was brought to light and is being left by the table side for electoral politics. It's deeply troubling to me. Uh, how broken this Congress is, and it's not just this Congress, it's been several, several years. You know, uh, just a couple months ago, there were members of Congress multiple times challenging people to fistfights, one, one in live hearing. I mean, it's a Jerry Springer Congress, and we need to have, you know, adults in the room that have a track record of being able to be uh, bipartisan but also who have a track record of getting things done in political dynamics that are wildly diverse. So, you know, I've been in most of the states in the country in the legislatures, and I've gotten things done in uh, red states, deep red states, purple states, uh, blue states, light blue states, you name it. and it's through having conversations and being willing to listen to people no matter where they're coming from. We don't get much of that in Congress now. I want to, I want to come back to that a little bit later, but first when you officially launched your campaign a couple of weeks ago, there were already two uh, arguably pretty formidable uh, contenders for the seat on the democratic side, both longtime figures in local politics and uh, both uh, members of the state assembly. Talk about what sets you apart in this race, because you're in the Democratic primary for a seat that uh, in the general will lean plus 5D. So it'll still be a tough general race, but leans Democratic. So um, the big race here is the, is the Democratic primary. Yeah, and, and uh, there's also you know, a fourth opponent, uh, uh, a woman named Sarah Schoengood, who, uh, who, who entered the race uh, recently. And I think what sets me apart is my experience across the map. It's one thing to have success in the New Jersey legislature that has been blue for an awful long time. Mm. It's another thing to have to have success in parts of the map where Republicans have real power, where MAGA Republicans have real power. That's a different task altogether. I've proven that I can do that. And I've also proven that I can do that consistently and principally for people across the political spectrum. Uh, there isn't an issue that I haven't advocated for the free speech rights of people on either side of. And it's that kind of mindset that Congress needs, one where the champions are champions not for Democrats or for Republicans, but for people across the board. Um, I've done that. I'm proud of my record, and I hope it will serve 
the people of the New Jersey Third well. Can you talk a little bit more about how your experience in civil rights um, litigation uh, has prepared you to legislate uh, specifically, and a little bit about the process of applying this principled approach uh, in places and with people who disagree with you, um, and how that how how that has prepared you to actually craft legislation in Congress, and then we'll get to the depolarization and and democracy stuff in a bit. But I want to talk about your experience and how you plan to apply that. Sure. Well, I have done uh, litigation, but the last twelve years of my career have been legislative. I've been the government relations head of Fire, going to all you know of the states and in Congress, helping craft statutes. I've been testifying in hearings across the country, and I've had to meet with lawmakers on all parts of the political spectrum and persuade them. And I was coming from FIRE, a nonprofit, where I didn't have a PAC behind me, couldn't, you know, and and wouldn't uh, be trying to trade on the electoral votes that I could bring. I was armed only with my ability to make arguments. And there, and even with that kind of approach, we had wild success across the country, not just in passing good bills, but in a lot of instances, defeating the bad. Uh, For example, we were instrumental in defeating a bill last year in Florida that was backed by Governor DeSantis that would have lowered the defamation standards against, you know, reporters and just everyday, you know, uh, uh, people who you know m- might be famous for one reason or another. Um, so uh, it was really terrible legislation that made it so that if you had a fact wrong negligently, you could be sued. Yeah. And it would have applied to politicians as well as reporters, which seems insane. Well, because it was insane, uh, but that didn't stop you know Republicans in Florida from pushing it forward and we had to engage them we had to talk to them we had to listen to them they had the votes if they wanted to to ram it through so there was no ability to just rely on democratic party opposition to defeat it we had to persuade republicans to decide to shelve one of their own bills and that requires a lot of work but we did it i did it i was there in florida uh for you know days and days on end, several trips until that bill was killed. And I think that that's the kind of skill set that we need in Congress, the kind of person that can persuade and meet people where they are. I'm fascinated by this because I think most people don't tend to consider uh, at least this iteration of the Republican cohort uh, persuadable on much. Uh, So I'm really curious about how that process actually played out for you and what what was it? What what tactic or what approach actually led to convincing people that to come around to your your way of seeing things? Well, we had to have a lot of conversations, and we had to listen, you know, to the bill sponsor and what they were concerned about, and we needed to connect them to people that they identified with uh, as their constituency, who could talk to them about the brass tacks of how it would affect them. So we had to put together a broad coalition uh, of folks, uh, and that included media personalities uh, that uh, from the conservative media 
they needed to hear from that group that, you know, the liability that they would face if that bill was passed. Really what it takes is a lot of patience and hard work and also listening. You can't have results without meeting people where they are unless you're going to rely exclusively on the mathematics. But we're in the United States of America. We have elections in the House of Representatives every two years. We're a bitterly divided country. We cannot count on the mathematics to get our way all of the time. We have to figure out how to persuade. And there are absolutely unreasonable people that we will not be able to persuade. I'm not trying to pitch anyone on a fairy tale here. But you make the case as reasonably as you can, as often as you can, to reach those that are reachable, because that's really what we're in a contest for. America, we need to get back to building together a coalition of the reasonable. And I know that not all of your listeners will agree with me on every issue. I'm sure that you have uh, Republicans and Libertarians and you know Democrats who might even think different from me as well. But it's not a contest necessarily all the time of D versus R. One of the fundamental competitions we're having in this country is and challenges we're, we're facing in this country is how we bring together the coalition of the reasonable, the people who want to solve problems and are willing to do things each other's way if it takes us forward. And uh, we so desperately need it. The immigration deal uh, desperately shows those tensions. Yeah, I want to come back to uh, the immigration deal in a little bit, but you raised something really important, which is the uh, inability, I think, as you put it, to rely on the mathematics. In other words, uh, <laughs> I like to think about it, brute, brute force legislation. You cannot do that anymore. Uh, and I think history tells us that when you do use brute force in legislation, it tends to become whatever the piece of legislation was, a political football for the next 10 years. And people are, uh, each side will be arguing over whether to repeal it. Think Obamacare, think Trump tax cuts. Um this is not a successful approach at legislating most of the time if you're looking for durable solutions that have buy-in from uh, broad swaths of the electorate. So uh, the very first issue at the top of your campaign website is depolarization. Talk about what role elected officials themselves should have in reducing polarization and what your conception of that is. Yeah, to me... Our national uh, polarization, and I actually think that, that polarization is occurring around the world, not just in the United States. But I'll talk, you know, about how we're experiencing in the United States first. Uh, you know, where even the relationship between Travis Kelsey and she's—I oh, think her name is Ta- is it Taylor Swift? Taylor Swift. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think I think that even in a world where um, where that romance is politicized as if it's any of our business, why they are in a relationship demonstrates how as a American culture, everything is turning into us versus them, mm-hmm. everything. And I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. We're all feeling it and it's crushing and it causes the kind of stagnation in politics uh, that we're seeing it. And, you know, w- there are tremendous incentives for people running for political office to just run towards their base because that's how primaries 
you know, work. The most partisan people are the ones that participate. So in my view, members of Congress need to show the courage to be willing to be cooperative with each other. And that doesn't mean going along with the craziest idea of the other side. Of course not. I'm not saying that any lawmaker should abandon their principles. But we should be able to find creative ways where both sides can get what they want in some instances. And we should be able to also uh, find ways to reach compromises that are sensible when that's necessary to get something done. And the other way that I think that members of Congress in particular, and maybe I shouldn't leave it to members of Congress, all of our elected officials uh, can improve things, is through modeling better behavior. I mean, that's leadership. It's really a leadership vacuum when we can't get people to just treat their political adversaries like their people. Uh, you know, one of the you know, the first day of my campaign, I reached out to you know my opponents to tell them that I'd like to sit down to lunch with them. You know, I've known them a little bit through my role as an advocate, but wanted to have a chance to get to know them better and let them get to know me better. Uh, I know that we're going to compete all of us as hard as we can to win our primary to be a model across the country of how primaries should be uh should be run you know in ways that are uplifting to the party's values and uplifting to the values of people in the you know in in the district uh and when uh when the latest my latest opponent entered the race last week i sent uh, her uh an email too extending the same offer and i radio silence mm. and that's not i mean and that's not really just indicative of them that's american politics it's american politics right now from any of them? Not at all. And, uh, and you know, uh, I, I, it's a shame because, you know, I'm of the thinking that, uh, that uh, all of us are trying to make America a better place. We wouldn't be going through what it takes to run a race uh, if we didn't have a vision, you know, of that. So, um, but we need to get back to an American politics that treats our adversaries like they're people of good faith. Uh, and and an individuals might lose that through their behavior, of course, might might lose that presumption, but that's where it has to start. And uh, and you know that's one of the reasons why I'm running is because we need people to model better behavior. And so it's not just you know it matters the mathematics. You know I'd much rather have Democrats in charge of the House of Representatives than Republicans for my politics, and I think it will be critically important uh, in the event that. Uh, the possibility that that Donald Trump could be back in the White House, you know, having a uh, check and balance on his power will be essential. Should that happen, you know, we need to do everything we can to prevent that from happening, you know, at the ballot box. But uh, but uh, it's still a possibility that we can't ignore. And the Senate map, uh, you know, is uh, is going to be very challenging for Democrats to keep the Senate uh, in this cycle. Uh, I hope we do. Uh, but uh, it's by no means a sure thing. 
the House of Representatives needs to be another check and balance because we can't have enough checks and balances on a person who tried not to leave office, yeah, who's actively engaged in an, ex- in an insurrectionist movement. Yeah. Um, you know, we can't have enough checks and balances there. So taking the House is of critical importance, and I want to, you know, help do that. This is a good segue to um, democracy, which you've you, which you've made uh, well defending democracy sort of a cornerstone of your campaign. Um, and one of the things we've been working on on the show is being intentional about uh, specific threats to democracy, articulating them clearly, and not merely using uh, you know small d democracy as a word as a sort of catch all, which I think is done too much. All over the place um, in most of the, the most of the discourse now, uh, to the extent that the word is sort of useless uh, at this point, because everybody uh, right and left is um, quote unquote fighting for democracy. They just have vastly different conceptions of what that means. Um, so maybe we can talk a little bit about that. Uh, what are the specific threats to democracy that you're most concerned about right now? Well, there are, are a number of them that I'm concerned about. I mean, first, the insurrectionist mov- movement is growing, not receding, and that's the that's the first you know problem that I see. Uh, and then there are just constant attacks, you know, on the press, on you know their credibility. Not to say that that, that anyone should be immune from criticism, uh, but there's just an assault on just the concept of there being truth. Like it's not just that you know people are reaching different conclusions from the facts but like to some people you know water is dry um and then you know us the country there are republican legislatures that have passed legislation uh to make voting harder i mean idaho banned college ids from being used as an acceptable form of id to vote uh florida shortened the window to request uh, mail-in votes by a day. None of that prevents, you know, cheating in elections. That's just how do we make it harder to vote? Ohio shortened the w- the window for requesting and returning mail-in ballots. Um, you know, uh, I want to highlight another bill that you know the North Carolina legislature uh, passed a bill that would require software to verify signatures and mail-in ballots, uh, despite there already being a requirement that people send in a photo ID. And they already required, you know, two witnesses uh, on a mail-in ballot to sign. You know, that Republican bill was vetoed by Governor Cooper, a Democrat. So Democrats have been just on the front line of defending democracy uh, through the right to vote, uh, and also have not nominated someone or championed someone, or I should say, on the verge, be on the verge of nominating someone who didn't want to leave office when they lost by millions of votes and by an electoral college landslide. Uh, you know, there were over 60 legal challenges uh, to the election. They were all tossed and tossed by judges, you know, of every political persuasion. I know that we're not talking, we're not supposed to talk about the judiciary as if it's politicized, but when I say political persuasion, I mean judges that were uh, nominated to the bench by Democrats, by Republicans, you name it, including President Trump himself, they're 0 for 62. Is it 0 for 63? And that's for a reason. They have no evidence to back up the, you know, those claims. So 
you know, these are the threats to democracy uh, that I see. Um, you know, I have little doubt in my mind that if you know Donald Trump were living in any number of other foreign nations with weaker institutions and checks and balances that he would have been able to pull off becoming a dictator. But we can't just rely on those checks and balances when there's a constant assault on them, constant assault on the integrity of like the FBI, for example, just to name one. So, you know, we need to get to a place where we have reasonable people who are the nominees for office top to bottom if we're going to get out of this because leadership from the top matters. We need to model it. Yeah. So in Congress, um, is this more a matter of embodying the uh, the norms, the procedures of democracy that are already in place that have served us so well for so many years? Um, or are there specific pieces of legislation that you have in mind uh, that that would patch some of the holes and some of the weaknesses that we've seen Trump expose uh, and the Trumpist movement expose over the last uh, five, seven, ten years? And specifically in terms of defending democracy, how do you how do you think about your role and Congress's role specifically? Well, I think you know extending the Voting Rights Act, you know, is one important thing that Congress can do. There's absolutely a role for Congress to play in making sure that elections are fair, that they're run securely, but that voters have real, meaningful access to the polls. So I think that's certainly part of it. But I do think that the larger part of it is the behavior modeling, the cultural ways that Congress as an entity can behave to start building confidence that our system is working. Because when Congress can't get anything done, it's the chief kind of political uh, body of government that's the most represented, most represented by democracy, you know, by virtue of not having the intervening electoral college uh, that exists with the presidency, where people have their own direct representation in how the government functions. And when it can't do anything, it leaves the executive branch to try to figure out how to solve you know, real problems. And you have, you know, I have a lot of conservative friends who are very concerned about the amount of leeway that the executive branch uses in their view without congressional authority. And you know, I'd feel differently about that issue if Congress wasn't filled with obstructionists who have no interest in actually solving problems. I'd much rather have Congress be more involved. We have talked on the show uh, on a few different occasions now because this is sort of a hobby horse of mine. That that is the the uh, the size and power of the executive branch because Congress keeps punting everything to the executive branch. But I think about it in terms of um, the vulnerability that power poses to democracy if you have another uh, Trump presidency. And as you mentioned, he hasn't succeeded in pulling off a dictatorship yet, but he's making another run at it now. Um, And uh, 
Uh, and I think at this point, the conventional wisdom is pointing to uh, the high court um, repealing Chevron deference, essentially, which um, uh, would would severely weaken the administrative branch. Um, how do you think the, or do you think, the executive branch or executive power might be or could be curtailed um, so that Congress would have an incentive to do more of the legislating, more of the rulemaking itself, and not be able to pass the buck to uh, or delegate its authority so much to the executive branch? Well, I, I think that, you know, folks who know me well know that I also have concerns about how the executive branch uses its authority. Um, you know, I, uh, at FIRE, was involved in raising the issue of how the Department of Education was bypassing the Administrative Procedures Act, which requires agencies to go through notice and comment periods and to solicit input from stakeholders before imposing binding regulations. Um, and you know, and it was doing that in the context of enforcing anti-discrimination law uh, on college campuses, but again, having skipped through that entire process of hearing stakeholders. So one thing that can be done is that Congress can insist that agencies follow the APA, uh, even if the agency is doing things that they agree and support just consistently as a matter of principle, saying that you always have to go through this process of stakeholder review uh, if you're going to pass binding rules that you're going to enforce. Um, when Congress isn't consistent about that, it's a real problem. So, so that's one thing. But the other thing that Congress can do, frankly, is start tackling the big problems that America's facing. Exercise its authority. You know, it, it, it isn't, you know, it isn't this entity that has no ability. It just doesn't have the will to do it. Right. They have no power. And, and part, <laughs> yeah. And, and, and part, part of it is that there are, you know, uh, you know, there's only so much power any single individual member of Congress has. But one person at a time we need to fill the seats with people who aren't going to accept that from leadership. You know, we don't only elect six people to Congress. We have to behave, and each member of Congress needs to behave as if, you know, they have a job to do and that there's urgency in tackling problems. And by urgency, I don't mean that you cut corners and that you don't take the time to hear testimony and review reports and really grapple with the intricacies of difficult, challenging problems. But we can't be decades into having not reauthorized the Higher Education Act. You know, <laughs> we have to tackle how we're, if we fund education, you know, higher education, you know, what it's going to look like, uh, if it's going to continue to be uh, one of the bright, you know, stars of what America offers the world. So it's, it's, it, that's just one example of how Congress's yeah. lack of willingness 
to get to the brass tacks and find a deal impacts people. Yeah, or or uh, you know, passing a budget once every decade or whenever they feel like it. <laughs> but <laughs> right, but that's another story. Yeah. Um, so, Joe, we have an episode uh, that we recently recorded, uh, but we're going to put out probably next week or sometime in the coming weeks about some of the anti-democratic threats coming from Christian groups specifically. And there's a line from that author, his name is David Gushy, that reminded me of the conversation that you and I and Hagar had about the Restrict Act last year. He wrote that uh, some of these Christian groups uh, consider their cause so important that they do not always respect democratic boundaries. That if the stakes are important enough, the rules and safeguards and laws can go out the window. In essence, uh, the democracy is acceptable and valid as an operating system only insofar as it works in your favor. Uh, now, with the Restrict Act, it was that the national security concerns about China being able to uh, gather data or influence Americans or thinking uh, was so important that the First Amendment protections were sort of completely elided in the in the discourse about it by the politicians who were supporting it. And it was a broad swath of politicians, Republican and Democrat, that were supporting the Restrict Act. So um, I don't mean to have you comment specifically on the Christian groups, but uh, in general, I wonder how you're seeing that specific justification. That is, that some things are just so important, um, erode constitutional protections and norms, like respecting the uh, independence of election workers, for example. We can't, you know, go down that road. Uh, and I want to point out that it is just as troubling when it's extremists from the left as it is when it's extremists from the right. You know, uh, we cannot disregard Supreme Court cases that we don't agree with. And we can't uh, continue to allow people to, uh, you know, block traffic for hours uh, to get their way. Uh, that, you know, that form of civil disobedience needs to be punished as if it's disobedience proportionally, of course. Um, but we have to be a society of laws. And in a society of laws, there will be rulings that either side of the political spectrum uh, find deeply frustrating, that strip people of really important rights that they should have. Uh, for me, uh, the Dobbs decision underscores that powerfully uh, because I think it puts the health and safety and freedoms of uh, millions of women particularly those in red states at risk. And it, it should matter uh, to people in the New Jersey third as well, uh, because some of them are parents who have sent their daughters to college in some of those states that are stripping them of these freedoms. And if their daughter were to get pregnant, in their freshman year in college, it will change the trajectory of their lives forever. So, um, you know, so we all need to be be mindful of of that. And I, I did make that segue uh, because I don't think that we can just ignore the Dobbs decision as if the Supreme Court didn't rule that way. Um, in a nation of laws, we need to work hard to change minds over time to restore those rights. One thing Congress can do is make it a statutory federal right. 
And I know that that will likely require mathematics. <laughs> I know that we talked about we can't always rely on mathematics. Sometimes you do need to win, you know, through mathematics on the on the issues that are just cultural, you know, divides. Um, I want to return to that for a moment so that people understand, you know, what I'm saying here, which is not that you can't ever have to rely on mathematics, but if you always rely on mathematics, everything is a yo-yo and then there's never any trust. But, uh, but, but, you know, Congress should be looking to ways to protect people's fundamental freedoms when the Supreme Court won't recognize it as a constitutional right. That's why you have constitutional rights and statutory rights. And, you know, if I'm elected to Congress, I'll be, you know, one more vote for codifying, uh, you know, sensible protections for reproductive freedom. There were um, months of negotiations. I want to pivot to the border. That's okay, because it's uh, hot right now. Um, Months of negotiations uh, before we finally got the text of the Senate's bipartisan border security deal. Uh, The president endorsed the text. He called it tough and fair. Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell endorsed the plan. Uh, The union that represents the workers at the Border Patrol, uh, which we should note twice endorsed Trump for president, is also backing the bill. So naturally, uh, Republican leadership in the House put out a statement saying it was dead on arrival in the House. Uh, looking at you, Mike Johnson, Steve Scalise, uh, Tom Emmer, Elif Stefanik. Uh, beyond the substance of the bill, um, which you can feel free to comment on uh, if, you're, if you're prepared to, but what can you do to actually get work done in such a dysfunctional Congress, Joe? So I, I think that the first thing is that if I'm elected, I'm going to be reaching out to members of all parts of the political spectrum. I want to sit down with MAGA people. I want to sit down with moderate Republicans. I want to sit down with Democrats who are more moderate than me and Democrats who are more progressive than me on other issues. Um, I want us to all sit down and I want us to get together frequently uh, you know, because I think that the more you break bread with people, the harder it is to refuse to work together on anything. And we need to, need to, need to build a coalition of, you know, people who are going to be doers. You know, the, you know, we need to convert people into the model of lawmaker who's willing to not, you know, stop things when they can't get their way 100%. You know, this immigration deal doesn't reflect what I would do if I were emperor of the universe and could just write exactly the bill that I would want written. Um, you know, but it does a number of really good things. Um, and, and, and let me just be clear, you know, on some things with immigration up front. I agree with Republican counterparts that we have a right to have a secure border. And that should be an important, you know, goal. Um, that that should be, you know, that should be part of, you know, our our immigration policy. And I'll also agree that we can't just put all of the burden and costs of this on the border states. That we should be figuring out a way to disperse the impact. You know, maybe by setting up welcoming centers throughout the country. 
that are prepared to absorb immigrant populations because you know America has been a nation built on immigration throughout our history and it's worked out pretty well for us in a lot of ways um, you know I hear that employers are really struggling to find talent the kind of person that hikes and bribes their way through paying very vicious people to smuggle them through, you know, Central America to find themselves at the border are not doing it so they can get a welfare check. They're doing it because they want a better life. And America is supposed to be a beacon for that kind of thinking. That doesn't mean that we can welcome every person in, but we have to raise the number of people that we're allowing in lawfully. We need to better fund the uh, systems of our immigration you know, courts, the BIA, the immigration courts, the enforcement mechanisms uh, that allow us to process cases promptly so that the people who warrant admission get it quickly and those that need to be removed are removed faster as well. That should be a win for people on both you know, sides of the issue. And if we find a way to disperse immigrants across the country to communities that are having labor shortages, it could really be a huge boon for us. And those are the kind of investments that Congress can make. And in this deal, one thing, you know, that it does is it allows DHS to deport a lot of people who don't come in to the country legally at specifically designated ports of entry. Um, and it makes it kind of optional for immigrants to be allowed in while they're awaiting processing, you know, to the, while, you know, the numbers are 4,000, you know, of migrants a day. But if it hits, 5,000 a day over a seven-day average, DHS would then have to stop allowing more people to be processed in lawfully. It would have to close the border. Not, you know, I'm not talking about closing the border from being unable to physically cross in places that aren't port of entries, but legally deny in those ports of entries. Uh, it allows DHS, you know, if Congress chooses to fund it in the future, to build you know, the wall. Um, you know, it, one thing that I liked about the deal was that here's a problem that I think most people don't think about. Someone comes to the United States seeking asylum. They come here and they think that they're going to be allowed to work, but our current law doesn't allow people to work and to get a visa that will allow them to work while their asylum case is pending. So they come into the United States, but are... Uh, left jobless. Well, if you're a conservative person and you're upset about how much we're spending on benefits for people who are not here with, you know, with permanent status yet, or even if they're not going to receive any from the government, but how much it's tapping out the generosity of charitable organizations to immigrants, allowing people who want to work to work to contribute and pay taxes 
seems like a no-brainer. You know, conservatives think that it will attract more people to come here. So one of the things that the deal did is it gave 90 days worth of work approval for those, you know, who meet the thresholds uh, to, you know, to have an asylum case processed. And it allows, it takes it out of the, out of the hands of immigration courts uh, to just summarily reject a lot of the applications for asylum too. And it really raised the standard from one of a substantial, uh, 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 sorry, significant possibility that they would face persecution back home to one of clear and convincing evidence that they face persecution back home. Now, I, I don't really love that elevation of the standard, but you know you have to have compromises if you're going to get something done. Yeah, and I think we should be fair here that and note that for anybody who hasn't followed the the immigration. Uh, debate closely or doesn't really understand the nature of the problem. The big, the 800-pound gorilla in the room in terms of the problems uh, is the asylum process because right now we have a system where anybody says the magic words and immediately they they are they are essentially no longer um, if they have crossed illegally uh, they're no longer uh, uh, they have they're no longer illegal in that sense they've no longer committed a crime as soon as they say the magic words, and that's part of the problem, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fair, you know, criticism that we aren't doing the greatest job of figuring out who really warrants receiving asylum and who doesn't. Uh, and that's a difficult problem yeah. to solve. I've it's done pro tough. bono asylum cases um, earlier in my career, uh, and, and I think there are a lot of people, you know, who are fleeing countries that they are fleeing real and meaningful persecution. I mean, there are Uyghurs in China who, you know, are being subjected to tremendous human rights, you know, abuses. Um, there's tremendous, you know, high gang activity in Central America that, you know, if you're a youth who doesn't want to be subject to gang violence, um, moving to the United States presents you an opportunity for a much safer future. Uh, so there are a lot of legitimate uh, asylum claims, but our system isn't staffed to process the legitimate from the illegitimate, and the current law initiates that system upon requesting it. So uh, there isn't a magic bullet that gets us to perfect efficiency and perfect justice all of the time. But that should be the aim. How close can we get to doing it efficiently while still staying true to our values of showing that we care about human beings and their human rights? And it's not like America doesn't have anything to gain from this. Uh, our society has benefited tremendously from having invited and welcomed immigrants who have been integrated into our society and you know uh significant contributors our economy is much better uh for it when it's done sensibly um i want to turn uh to the challenge of fundraising in a minute but um but before we get there joe is there anything um any issue in particular or anything maybe about New Jersey politics that you want listeners to know who probably 
predominantly are not in New Jersey, <laughs> right? Uh, what do you want to explain to them about New Jersey politics and um, anything maybe that we haven't touched on yet? Well, New Jersey politics uh, doesn't have the reputation for being the most uh, democratic, and it probably wouldn't earn a gold star uh, under any fair measure. Um, we have the system here uh, called the county line, where the party bosses uh, and the, you know and set up rules in each county to figure out who will earn the party's endorsement in the primary. And that doesn't just, the victor doesn't just get uh, the party's support in terms of something they can put on their website saying, you know, I'm backed by such and such counties, you know, Democrats. It doesn't get just the extra work of volunteers who, you know, see that and, and, and decide that they want to mobilize. It comes with ballot manipulation, ballot placement, where you're going to be on the ballot. So it's not like alphabetical or any other random system, a process by which it determines and tries to arrange who's in a better positioning. And that matters for you know the less informed voters who want to click a button and, and take the recommendation of the party. So it's a, it's a really strange process that isn't legal anywhere else in the country. And, you know, I'm, I'm really uneasy about it because a cornerstone of my campaign, as we've discussed, is defending democracy. And I think that we also need to do that here at home in New Jersey. So uh, I am pleased that the issue is getting some attention uh, nationally. It was recently uh, discussed by CNN reporter Jake Tapper on a segment, and it is uh, really an important uh, issue. So listeners understand, what does this actually look like on a ballot, and why why is this um, such a big deal? Is this, a, is this, you know, like the difference between uh, having your name as a Democratic candidate listed in the same column, you know, a couple spaces away from Joe Biden, who's running for president, versus being clear across the page. Why is this so powerful as a tool, the manipulation itself? Well, if the committee can put on the ballot, we endorse Joe Biden, you know, for, you know, for president, and so and so for Senate, for Senate, and so and so for the House seat. You know, and down the ballot, and then can repeat the offices later on. Uh, some people will never even get to later on on the ballot before they press the button. Um, and that's what's intended. That's not a that's not a uh, a unfortunate byproduct of it. That is the specific intent of this process. And uh, there's no reason why. New Jersey voters should continue to accept that kind of manipulation. Um, you know, and I wanted to say real quickly that 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 the party bosses do a number of really good things too, in the amount of hard work that they do to kind of get their party's position uh, expressed, you know, and get people mobilized. You know, all of the other stuff that they're doing is stuff that you know they deserve a tremendous amount of credit for. Uh, so I don't want to paint people in the good versus evil camp, uh, but you know, I think we all 
can look at this process and say that uh, if we want to have credibility across the country when we're talking about free and fair elections, we need to examine what we're doing here and whether or not it embodies that. And, you know, to say that there's room for improvement uh, is, uh, to me, the most modest way of stating the case. And that's true even if I were to get a county line. You know, we shouldn't be uh, continuing to do that. It doesn't matter to whose benefit and whose detriment. Okay, let's talk about um, brass tacks here. Uh, and you know the, the the reality of running a congressional campaign, uh, the challenge of fundraising, and uh, I think the incentive to nationalize the race, um, which gets at I think the broken business model of Congress in the first place uh, that we've talked about a lot on the show. Uh, you and I have talked about. Um, and first of all, I want to encourage any listeners out there who have liked what they've heard. Uh, and want to learn more, they should go to your website, Cohn C-O-H-N, for congress.com. Yes. Uh, and and there you can donate. You got to raise a lot of money, obviously. Um, but I want to I want to drill into the tension here that exists between the kind of candidate, kind of uh, official you'd like to be in the way you'd like Congress to um to change. And the perverse incentive system that has evolved around the body because of the way information moves, the um, the sort of grandstanding to get clicks and donations. Um, you're basically uh, on a reality television show, and your incentive is not to legislate. It is not to solve problems. Actually, your incentive is to um, essentially participate in the spectacle so that more people will be captivated and give you money for owning the other side. How do you plan to to uh, win in this environment and actually do good work in this environment? Campaigns and elections are such a unique. <laughs> there isn't one single playbook for how to win an election, you know, versus losing one. But my plan is to be in the community a lot to talk to real voters, to listen to what they have to say, and to talk about issues in a way that demonstrates that I'm the kind of person that could represent them well in Congress, that I'm their best choice. My hope is that people tuning into your show from across the country who listen to this decide that I'm the kind of person they'd like to support, they'd like to see in Congress, can make Congress operate better, uh, whether they're listening from New Jersey, uh, California, uh, Texas, Nevada, where I grew up, uh, wherever they are, and say, you know, yeah, I can support this guy. It's worth kicking in a little bit so that he can get his message out there. Um, you know, I plan on doing everything that I can to be in front of as many of the voters as possible and to be as reasonable as I can, because that's what this is about right now. America, I hate to you know underscore this point, I know I've said it already in the show, but America more than anything needs representatives who will prioritize being reasonable and prioritize reaching out to folks who aren't known for that, constantly inviting them into the reasonable camp and treating them with enough respect 
of listening and dialogue and keeping the conversation going until you find one issue at a time where they're willing to work with you. It, it, it's it's hard work and it requires patience, but that's what I've been doing for you know the last twelve years. I know it can be done successfully because I've done it. And you know the the incentives in Congress might be you know different because it raises the stakes, but that underscores why we need people who are going to put in the full effort. Well said. Joe Cohn for congress.com. Joe, thanks for coming back on the show and Godspeed. Best of luck. Thank you. And Ron, Godspeed or whatever speed you prefer to finish your day at. Beautiful. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening. If you haven't yet, We'd appreciate it if you could open up the Apple Podcasts app and give us a five-star rating and review over there. This helps us rise in the rankings so that new people can discover politicology organically. If you have questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us, as always, at podcast at politicology.com. And even when we can't respond, we do read everything you send us, whether it's an episode idea, a guest recommendation, or just a simple note about how the show has impacted you. And we love hearing from you. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.